Namo tassa magavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa magavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa magavato Arahato Sama Sambudhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sanghang Namasami By the way, just in case you're wondering that uh, that Namo is usually just done by the the person giving the Dhamma talk, so you're welcome to join in if you like, but uh, you might find yourself with more of a responsibility than you're planning on. So, um, I thought I might uh, try and um, continue on with some of the the themes that... um, we've been exploring uh, the um, it's, it's really interesting to me the little discussion a couple of discussions we had this morning about translations of terms you know, it's always this uh, especially in this area of out on the border of where words expire <laughs> where the buses don't run <laughs> It's always a kind of a choice of how you use language, and the use of, of terms is all very flexible, and and uh, and you know you can only you know they can only point um, roughly and vaguely to um, uh, the principles that are, are uh, being um, say reflected upon or, or discussed. So it's a, it's an intriguing area, and. Uh, I remember once, years ago, I, I was looking at, uh, as in a, a book of Advaita Vedanta teachings and, and looking in the glossary at the back and you'd find that uh, where, where Sanskrit had one word, there'd be a paragraph of English to explain it. <laughs> so these kind of refined areas of, of consciousness, English is pretty um, uh, impoverished in. Emotions we're great at. We've got scads of words for shades of emotion, but... Uh, the fine details of the inner reaches of consciousness. Um, it's, it's hard to find uh, English words which really um, give a, a kind of accurate or complete picture or are not kind of uh, uh, causing us to lose our way somewhat. Anyway, um, one of the, um, the, the themes I thought I would um, pick up on is something I mentioned yesterday, which is uh, one of the ways that the Buddha talked about um, uh, the the practice, which is very similar to the the whole principle within Dzogchen, as far as I can gather it, that at a certain point, um, even the most skillful states have to be let go of. And uh, this is a principle which you can call it different things, but I tend to refer to it as attending to the deathless. Attending to the deathless. The deathless element, and that's in uh, Pali. That's the uh, the amata datu, the deathless element or deathlessness. Uh, 
Um, there's a, a great uh, one of these sweet little passages where there's an exchange between two of the, the elder monks. You have uh, Venerable Sariputta, who is the Buddha's chief disciple and the one most uh, eminent in wisdom and also meditative accomplishments. He had zero psychic powers, by the way. Sariputta had absolutely no psychic powers whatsoever, but he was the, the kind of grandmaster of meditators. It's an interesting mix. And also had incredible uh, uh, acute wisdom. Anyway, the, um, this other elder disciple of the Buddha, uh, Anuruddha, um, this was before his, his uh, enlightenment, comes to Sariputta and says, and Anuruddha had this uh, uh, spectacular psychic powers. He had the, the one who was most blessed with the, what's called the heavenly eye, so he could see into all different realms and read people's minds and this kind of stuff. And so he said to Sariputta, well, with, with the divine eye, kind of purified and perfected, I can see into 10,000 10, universal, the 10,000 universal system. I can see into 10,000 you know, universes. Um, no problem. Um, and then with my, um, you know, my meditation is firmly established. Um, I have, I have uh, unrelenting energy and persistence. Uh, my, my mindfulness is, is, is firm as a rock. Uh, I'm calm. The body is totally relaxed. Um, and, uh, you know, there's acute one-pointedness of mind. And yet still, my heart is not free from the, from the asavas, from the, the uh, outflows, the, the confusions, defilements. You know, what am I getting wrong? And so... Uh, you know, in, it's, uh, the Pali canon has a lot of humor in it, but it's rather like English humor. Sometimes it's easy to miss it. <laughs> <coughs> and a lot of the early translations of the Pali canon are done by the English. So, you, know, you really, a lot of the time, you don't get the joke, right? So, uh, so you have this sort of subtle tone of, of uh, Anuruddha saying, you know, well, you know, I can, I can, you know, see through all, all the, you know, the ten thousand fold universal system and I'm, I, you know, my meditation is totally together what am I getting wrong and Sariputta replies you know friend um, well your, your ability to see into the 10,000 universal system well that's connected to your conceit and you <laughs> and you know all this and your um, your persistent energy your unrelenting mindfulness your, uh, your physical calm and your, your one-pointedness of mind, uh, this is all to do with your restlessness. And the fact that you, you um, bemoan uh, that you still have not released the heart from the, the, uh, the asavas, the defilements, this is just tied up with your anxiety. It would be good, friend, if rather than uh, uh, occupying yourself with these concerns, instead you turned your attention to the deathless element. And uh, so, of course, Anuruddha goes, hmm, okay, thank you very, thank you very much. Uh, and he goes off and, um, and then shortly thereafter uh, realizes uh, enlightenment. So, this is a kind of, um, it's a very understated humor. <laughs> but uh, the... Uh, the fact that, you know, Anuruddha, you know, and just as, as Rinpoche has been pointing to, there can be this kind of intense sincerity and diligence and even sort of spectacular achievements, you know, great visions and powers and stuff going on. 
but you know the the as long as that you know you you're sort of saying hey you know I, look at how wonderful my problems are <laughs> you know i'm you know i'm really kind of an accomplished meditator how come i'm not getting it and it's like Sariputta is saying, well, the f- you're so busy with all of the, the doingness and the, the, um, the process of meditation, of the spiritual work, if you like, and then the effects coming from that, because obviously he was extremely successful in many ways and um, had you know, all the signs of going, heading in the right direction. You know, what, Sa- what the Sariputta then pointed to him, him too is like, you know, you're looking in the wrong direction. It's just like Rinpoche is saying you're kind of going out. Even though it's very subtle, out. It's still, you're heading out. There's this, the meditation out there, the object out there, the 10,000 universal system out there. So just attend instead to the deathless element. And it's that just kind of gesture of, oh, right. And uh, and it's in as in these usually kind of highly understated ways in the Pali Canon. It says, "In no long time, you know, <laughs> the Venerable Anuruddha, you know, his heart was freed from the from the defilements, and he was uh, liberated." There's also a few places where the Buddha talks about. Um, just the development of concentration, meditative absorption, and how uh, even when the mind is like in in uh, in uh, in f- jhana, uh, in that meditative absorption, so first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, all the way up to the kind of the highest sort of formless jhanas, he says, you know, to, to in the true development of wisdom, one should uh, look at those states and to recognize all this is conditioned and thus gross. And even when the mind is absorbed in those states, there's still the mindfulness to then, like, to turn away from the absorption in that state, even while you're in it, to then reflect all this is conditioned and thus gross, but there is the deathless element. And then inclining towards the deathless element, then the the heart is released. And similarly, um, the... um, the, you know, the reflection that... um, Everything in, in the same way through through the different in the different states of jhana. Even when the mind is really concentrated and very very pure and bright, then to still be able to say, well, to recognize, insofar as this this state is connected with the five khandhas, with the body, with feelings, with perceptions, with um, uh, thoughts and ideas, uh, mental formations, and just even so far as it's connected just with consciousness itself, then. Um, this should be regarded as uh, as impermanent, as a disease, as an alien, as something alien, as something which is um, an affliction, something which is void, empty, not self. Um, and that, and in that recognition, uh, again, turning away from that state to attending to the deathless, turning to the like the mind ground. Like, so it's like it's and it's in a way uh, um, like within a picture. You know, the attention goes to the to the figure of a picture, and we miss the ground. Just like in this room, the attention, you know, with me sitting here talking in this kind of glorious <laughs> zippy uh, dharma seat that we have here, but uh, you know, you're probably not attending to the space just in front of me, if you're attending to me at all. <laughs> but if you are looking this way, you you don't you're not looking at the space in front of me or beside me. You tend to, to the, the attention goes to the object, right? 
just as um, you know, if you've ever painted a picture or you've painted a wall, uh, and there's there's one spot, that place in the picture where you blew it, and you can't quite cover it up, you can't quite fix it, or the place on the wall where there's that glitch. Where does the eye go when you look at the wall? One place, right? <laughs> Straight onto the spot. So in exactly the same way, our perceptual systems are geared to aim for the figure. They don't go to the ground. And so the, what is being talked about here is like, even in the, the object is ex- can be extremely um, refined, like say in the you know, states of jhana, can be uh, extremely um, uh, delicate and, and of the most refined degree. The, the, what the Buddha is pointing to is like, this is still an object. This is still an object. And that uh, even though it can be an object that looks, r- like you were saying about Alaya, like it really, really looks like the ground. I mean, it's just like blazing light and there's no feature and this thought is like 50 kilometers away. It's like there's no thought even anywhere near. It's still, aha, uh-huh, there's an object and there's a subject. Aha. Uh-huh. And then, so it's like that, even no matter how refined it is, to be able to turn back from that. It's also, incidentally, why, though probably most people here don't have this as a big problem in their lives, that um, there's this, uh, uh, in, in the Buddhist meditation circles, there's always a, the, uh, the kind of, well, not always, but often, the encouragement, to, if the mind gets into those states of absorption, you know, be careful, because it's actually really difficult to develop insight. Because the state is so, it's such a good facsimile of liberation. It's such a good facsimile of, of release that, hey, you know, you've got this stuff. It looks like real gold. You know, hey, it's here. So why bother going any further? You know, this is, this is, this is good. And in cosmological terms, it's like saying that the, the, best place is to be, the best place to be liberated is in the human realm because there's a good mixture of suffering and, and bliss happiness and unhappiness. If you're off in the deva realms, it's difficult because, hey, it's just this kind of ongoing party. And you don't even have to clear up afterwards. <laughs> you're just going to hang out in the Nandia Grove and the kind of people drop grapes in your mouth and you sort of <laughs> waft around with the hordes of the beings of your favorite gender uh, floating in close vicinity. And of course, not much competition <laughs> for you. you know, you're always the star of the show in these places. And then if you're up in the Brahma realms, it's even worse, like, you know, 80,000 eons of unutterable bliss. Well, hey, you know, <laughs> who's going to come back down to grubby old earth, you know, deal with uh, tax returns, <laughs> permits, if especially there's a new Buddhist hell, permit hell, <laughs> <We've> dis- <laughs> we discovered it. <laughs> Gary, Gary knows, yeah. Those who work in the office know. So, uh, but it's uh, the cosmology is 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 uh, indicating the the kind of uh, is a reflection, the kind of characterization of the internal world. So that so uh, and as a, one of the great meditation masters of Thailand, Ajahn Tate, was such an adept meditator. He he um, as soon as he sat down to meditate, he would go straight into arupa jhana, formless uh, states of absorption. Just like sit down, boom, and he was the the sense world would just collapse, and he was immediately in absorption. It took him twelve years after he met his teacher to train himself not to do that and to develop to to keep his concentration at a level where he could develop insight. Because in that state, in those states, the 
the, it's just so nice. Why bother cultivating reflection or, or investigating the nature of experience? Because the experience itself is just like so seamlessly delicious. Why bother? Hey. But the reason why you bother is because those are not dependable and they're not yours. <laughs> so, um, the, uh, and uh, probably not many people have a problem getting stuck in a Rupa Jhana here. <laughs> it's not a big issue in the Buddhist world in the West, but uh, it's helpful to understand why these principles are, are talked about. And that, and that gesture of attending to the deathless is really interesting in, this, in the teachings. It says, why don't you, withdrawing your attention from that, incline your mind towards the deathless? It's just like that, just like, let go. You know, just notice Rigpa. Open yourself, and just as we've been saying, and over and over, it's not like a massive um, reconstruction program. It's not like you have to kind of uh, do a whole doing a whole lot. It's it's just a very simple and natural relaxation. It's like a, a noticing that which has been there all along, like noticing the space. And again, like Rinpoche said, yeah, space is the best example and the worst example. <laughs> but it's it's reasonable to use, like. We don't notice space. It doesn't grab our attention. Nibbana does not have... Nibbana is not exciting. It doesn't grab our... Space does not grab our attention. Yeah, it has no feature. It has no color, no taste, no form. So therefore, because the perception, the perceptual systems and the naming activity of the mind is, it, it works on forms, that's what it goes to first. Uh, another of the um, the, uh, the things that that's come up uh, and the way that the Buddha talked about this, um, at least in the Theravada teachings, is what's known as unsupported consciousness. I mean, these are all inter- don't you know, don't have to figure it out or take notes if you don't want to. But, um, these are all interrelated in somewhat synonymous terms, but it's just like using different, like describing a tree from different sides and different angles. So unsupported consciousness. Um, uh, the, the Buddha used um, uh, the, uh, those teachings such as um, wherever there is something which is uh, intended, something which is acted upon, or something which lies dormant, that becomes a basis for consciousness to land. But whenever there is, and where consciousness lands, then that becomes a cause, that is a cause for um, confusion, attachment, becoming, rebirth, etc. Dukkha. But if there is nothing intended, acted upon, or lying latent, then consciousness has no basis to land upon. And having no basis, then consciousness is released. Aha, it gets interesting. <laughs> having no basis, then consciousness is released. As consciousness is released, having no basis, then uh, there is a recognition, the consciousness release, one recognizes um, uh, this, is, this is firm, this is, this is strong, that this is, um, uh, this is bright, this is unconfused, this is not agitated. There's a, a kind of um, sukha, um, contentment, and then that, uh, and as these, these uh, 
qualities are, are kind of established, then there's a, rec- the, that, that's a recognition or the realization of Nibbāna. Now again, with all of these different processes, oftentimes the Buddha says, and even if the, the heart is not totally released at that time, then at least um, there's the fruition of, of, uh, of anagami, of like non-return. You kind of you, it's to get a, a, at least a high level of realization that comes with that. So that then, this whole concept of consciousness, which is which is unsupported, so that it's like there's consciousness, there's there's cognition, there's knowing, but it's not landing any place, it's not abiding any place. There's another another passage where the Buddha says, if you have a wall on the, uh, that faces out towards the east, and in that wall there's a window, when the sun comes comes up in the morning, where will the shaft of sunlight fall? And then he's asking the the some of his, his uh, monks, and he says, on the, on the western wall, Venerable Sir, he says, and if there's no western wall, where will the sunlight land? He says, uh, on the ground. And if there's no ground, where will it land? On the water. <laughs> and if there's no water, where will it land? Yeah. He said, well, if, there's, uh, if there's no water, then it will not land. And the Buddha said, exactly so. When the heart uh, releases... Um, is released from the passions or passion for um, what's called the 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 four nutriments. That's uh, so passion for physical food, for sense contact, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, uh, uh, intention, and consciousness. Uh, when the, when the heart is released from passion for for all of those different physical and, and mental. Uh, areas of the phys- physical and mental world, when the heart is released from passion, then it does not land anywhere. Consciousness does not land. Okay, so this is just another way of, uh, of using it, and, and so I'm just sort of putting out a few different images so that, you know, that different things appeal to different people. So the, the Buddha used a whole galaxy of different images and similes and forms because you know, different things have kind of hit the spot for different people. Now the other... Uh, um, thing I mentioned the other day, which is uh, when I, I was listening to, to Rinpoche a couple of years ago at um, uh, the retreat I was on with him, and he was talking about empty essence, unconfined, uh, cognizant in nature, un- unconfined capacity. Um, I mentioned how that seems uh, extraordinarily parallel to a uh, this passage. Um, where the Buddha talks about the mind of the, the enlightened mind, vinyanang anidasanang anantang sabato pabang. Of course, I mentioned that the other evening, and you all remembered it. <laughs> but uh, and that's why I, uh, when when I, it was interesting when Tony was translating that, because I thought, okay, empty in essence, cognizant in nature, unconfined capacity. Well, the the list in the Pali, you get you get empty anidasana, like invisible or signless, featureless. Um, anantang, limitless, unconfined, infinite. Um, uh, sabato pabang, radiant in all directions. So I thought, oh, it's funny, they don't have the radiance in their equation. Oh, I, wonder, I wonder how that works out. And then today, so I found out, oh yeah, it is actually pabasara, the word he's translating as clarity. So you actually have the, the, exactly the same um, collection of terms used both in the, from the, the, the Dzogchen formulation and in this, this particular very well-known passage in the, 
the Buddha's teachings. So that the, just to repeat this again, uh, um, because also you know these are passages that it's you know you don't get it first time, and it's it's really helpful just to kind of and that's why we memorize a lot of stuff is like you you take these things in and you you chew them over and and, and reflect on them, meditate on them, so that the the question was where is it that earth, water, fire, and wind can find no footing, and the Buddha says, an earth and where earth, water, fire, and wind and long and short and coarse and fine and pure and impure can find no footing. There it is that both body and mind come to an end. When consciousness, with the stopping of consciousness, everything here is brought to an end. With the stopping of consciousness, then everything here is brought to an end. So, that kind of uh, image that's put forth there, it's just like there's, there's this, um, you know, like the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree and then the hordes of Mara, you know, coming at him. And it's just like there's this, um, the Mara's kind of uh, armies are, are hur- hurling themselves at the Buddha and nothing can get into the space under the Bodhi tree, no matter how, you know, the, and all the weapons that they, they throw, the spears that they throw, and the, uh, they, they turn into... Um, uh, uh, rays of light and the f- and the um, the arrows that they fire turn into flowers and they kind of uh, they all sort of sprinkling down around the Buddha, uh, but nothing can no nothing to harm the Buddha can get into that space. So similarly, it's rather like this that that they can f- that that the uh, sight and sound, smell and taste and touch, uh, long and short and coarse and fine, pure and impure, all aspects of body and mind. And the, you know, I mean, and aspects in terms of the, all of the qualities of the phenomena of body and mind, they can't find a footing. It's like a kind of non-stick realm. Like they kind of keep coming at the Buddha, but like it falls away. Nothing can stick. Nothing can get in, and uh, and harm the Buddha in any way. So that this is um, uh, uh, again an image that we can we can use. But there's also, I think it's helpful in to, to reflect on that, the, like the phrases at the end there, when, um, when, when the mind is in that state, and so all things here are brought to an end. When consciousness is stopped, then all things here are brought to an end. Or when consciousness ceases, all things are brought to an end. So I thought... Actually, this afternoon, this was all a long preamble at this point. <laughs> I'm big on preambles. Um, so one of the things that comes up often in the Theravada world is the whole con- concept of cessation. Right? This is a familiar term. And that there's a... Often it's understood that like, cessation is, is sometimes put forth as this thing that we're all looking forward to, where everything vanishes... Um, uh, and then we're fine. Great God will come from the sky, take away everything, <laughs> make everybody feel high. <laughs> See, it's cross-religious, <laughs> cross-religious boundaries. It's an, un, an ancient city called Bob Marley. <laughs> so. Um, the, 
but the word niroda, uh, cessation, when we say the cessation of consciousness, like when consciousness ceases, everything um, here is brought to an end. So when in England, and again, this is like the, and I don't want to do a whole, you know, get obsessed about words, but it, it, we misunderstand, we suffer a lot or get confused because of misunderstanding this. So when we talk about like, stopping consciousness, does, do you think that means, okay, let's all get unconscious? You know, you know it can't be that, can it? You know, the Buddha was not extolling the virtues of unconsciousness. You know, otherwise, you know, Thorazine would be the way to, <laughs> or barbiturates, you know, just give me the, you know, give me the anesthetic and, and that'll be the way to Nibbana. But obviously that's not it. So that understanding what is meant by stopping or cessation is, is, is pretty crucial, really. And I've known people particularly who've, who've practiced in the Theravada tradition who've, who've been taught and trained that the idea of meditation is to get to this place of cessation. And cessation means you don't feel anything, you don't see anything, everything is, is gone. Like a, an emptiness of absence, like the, the, the sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, the body, it's all vanished. And then being told that, you know, this is the greatest thing. That's what there is to look forward to. And then um, having then put tremendous hours and diligence into their meditation, having arrived at that kind of state, and then to, uh, to quote one person's experience of it, uh, when, when uh, she told her teacher, he, he got really excited and then asked her, well, what, so what did it feel like? And she said, well, it was like being shut inside a refrigerator. <laughs> So I don't, I don't quite know what he made of that, but <laughs> he probably thought, oh, some English I don't understand. Yeah. But um, you know, my, my, um, I think it is helpful to understand what, well, at least my own, my own in, uh, sort of use of this or understanding and experience. It kind of looks at cessation in a very, very different way. Like the word niroda, the the source of it is the uh, is the word rud, which means also not to end, not just to end, but also to check or to hold, like like holding a, a horse in check. If you're riding a horse, you have a check on the reins. You can be galloping, but you can have a tension on the reins, right? And then um, so that 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 uh, niroda also has this quality of holding everything in check. So like with the stopping of consciousness, then everything is held in check. And so when also with the stopping of consciousness, what does that mean? So does, does it mean there's no consciousness? When it says the stopping of consciousness. Um, and the, uh, <coughs> the way of understanding it is exactly the same. Like you, you're, you're looking at it in a, in a, a kind of, you have to redraw your internal map. There's a story of um, the time of the Buddha. He was he was meditating one night, and this uh, this devatar appeared to him. Very kind of brilliant, beautiful devatar appeared in front of him. And this devatar was called Rohitasa. And Rohitasa came to the Buddha and said, "When I was a, a, a human being, uh, I was a, a, a spiritual seeker uh, of great psychic power." Uh, a Skywalker. That's appear. Those very words appear. <laughs> a uh, what is it? 
a caster charity, the Skywalker. And, uh, and even though um, I journeyed for a, hun- uh, for a hundred years with great determination and resolution, I traveled and traveled and traveled, I could not come to the end of the world. And I died on the journey before the, the journey had been, before I'd found the end of the world. So can you tell me, um, is it possible to journey to the end of the world? And then the Buddha said, uh, it is not possible to reach by walking the end of the world, but I also tell you that unless you reach the end of the world, you will not reach the end of suffering. Uh-huh. You can't get to the end of the world by walking, but unless you get to the end of the world, there's no possibility of ending suffering. So then, of course, Rohitasa was a bit puzzled and saying, please explain this to me, Lord, if they do. And uh, so the Buddha said, in this very fathom-long body is the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. So in that instance, he uses exactly the same form as with the Four Noble Truths. So what he's doing there is, and the world, loka, in this respect, means the, the, the world of our experience. And almost always, that's how the Buddha uses the term, the world. It's the world as it is experienced by us. So it means our experience of the world, of, of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought, emotion, feeling. That's what the world is. It's my world, your world, that is the world, rather than the kind of, uh, a, a kind of abstracted geographical planet, universe-type world. It's my experience of the planet and the people in the cosmos. So that, you know, in that respect, the cessation of the world, the origin of the world, here is the world, here is the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. So what he's doing is like equating that directly with dukkha. You know, saying that as long as there's, that we, are cre- we create me and my experience, me in here, the world out there, subject and object, then there is dukkha. And the way leading to the, to the cessation of, of that uh, duality is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. And so that um, geographically it's impossible to journey to the end of the world, but only when we, we come to the, the cessation of the world, which literally means like the cessation of its otherness, the cessation of its thingness, when we stop creating uh, the sense objects and thoughts and feelings as solid things, then it's like we have the, the world in check, like I was describing yesterday, the seeing the world is within our minds. This is one way of working with it, that actually you know, the, the whole universe, the whole world is embraced, because it's, it's happening within our minds. And when, in that moment when we recognize, oh, it all happens here, it has ceased, and its thingness has ceased, its otherness has ceased. Its, substanti- its substantiality has ceased. So, this is just one way of, of talking about it or thinking of it. Um, but I find this is, this is much, much closer to the truth because in that respect, there's, it's held in check. It's known. But um, it's also, there's the, the quality of its emptiness. 
its insubstantiality, is also known. We're not imputing a solidity to it, a reality to it, that it doesn't, that it doesn't possess. We're just looking directly at that, knowing it fully and completely. So the world has ceased. But when the world ceases, what happens? You know, and again, this doesn't mean to say, oh, hooray, you know, it's all vanished. You know, I remember one time um, Ajahn Sumedha was giving a, giving a talk and he was, he was talking about uh, the same subject. And he said, okay, now I'm going uh, to make you all I'm going to make you all disappear. I'm going to make the world come to an end. You know, so probably not many people in the room thought there was going to be a nuclear explosion. But and he just sat there up in the, on the Dharma seat and said, okay, are you ready? The world just ended. Do you want me to bring it back into being again? Okay, welcome back. But nothing uh, is apparent from the outside. But internally, when we, we stop creating the world, we stop creating the, each other, we stop imputing that solidity, then um, the, we're not shutting off the senses in any way, but we're actually shedding the veneer, the, the, uh, the films of of confusion, of opinion, of judgment, of, of our conditioning. They're being shed at that time and we can see uh, internally and externally the way things actually are. So that then, and at that moment, just as we've been saying, that suffering ceases. And that, this is what we can call the experience of Rigpa. No dukkha. As there's, not, there's knowing, there's liberation, freedom. You follow? Yeah. Oh, in that, um, in this respect, it's really striking to me how close. Um, the language of the Dzogchen teachings matches the, the kind of expressions of the Thai forest uh, teachers, because these are exactly the kind of teachings that they, they dwell on a, a lot and, uh, and use a great deal. And that um, particularly uh, my own teacher, Ajahn Chah, would, um, he used to uh, give, um, similarly give people a hard time, people who were trying to meditate and who wanted to kind of shut the world out. You know, if you came across a monk who had sort of barricaded the windows of his hut and was kind of trying to black everything out and keep everything muffled and or the you know heaven preserve you if he found you with earplugs or <laughs> you, you would be made mincemeat of you know. because uh, he was always of the 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 mind that uh, that uh, you know that it's not but and this was because of his own experience and his own years of of trying to make the world shut up and leave him alone <laughs> Failing miserably, that he saw, yeah, that's not the place of peace. That's not, that's not where we find uh, completion and resolution. He uh, he had a, a years ago. He was he was traveling and uh, living on his own in the countryside. And he was uh, staying on this mountainside. And in Thailand, they love these um, these uh, kind of 
all-night film shows. They have, because it's very hot in the daytime, so whenever they have a party, they party all night long. The nights are cool. And so um, about 30 years ago, the PA system was, uh, was being developed in Thailand, and so every, you know, every decent show had to have a PA going, and so of course he blasted as loud as he possibly can all through the night. So one time he was off in this remote place living on this mountain, and there was this festival in the village. And he'd been living around there for some time, and so he's sitting there meditating, and so there's just all this music going, and they're kind of amplifying all the, lo- all the local folk songs and pop music, and, and uh, he's sitting there sort of mindfully seething, thinking, don't they realize all the kind of demerit that involved, bad karma involved in disturbing my meditation? You know, they know I'm up here and, and you know, I've been teaching them. Don't they know anything? And what about the five precepts? And I bet they're boozing. <laughs> so, uh, he's, but he was a pretty smart fellow, so he suddenly realized, um, well, they're just having a good time down there. <laughs> I'm making myself miserable up here. You know, and no matter how upset I get, you know, my upset is just making more noise, you know, internally. And so he, re- and then he had this insight, oh, the sound is just the sound. I'm going out to annoy it. <laughs> if I leave the sound alone, it won't annoy me. It's just doing what it has to do. That's what sound does. It, it does that. That's, this, is, this is its job. So if I don't go out and bother the sound, it's not gonna. It's not gonna bother me. Aha. Uh-huh. So this was a principle that he, he kind of espoused from that from that time on and encouraged. So that you know that if you if um, you displayed a, a kind of a, a, an urge to try and get away from people and get away from stimulation, get away from things and responsibility, then uh, you know he had the kind of uh, t- teaching style where he would just shove you straight into it. You know. Put you in charge of the uh, of the the cement mixing crew and <laughs> take you on every invitation to either you know to do every house blessing that came on the on the calendar. He'd make sure <laughs> that you went along <laughs> because you know you were so determined, and then you to get your meditation together. And you know, with, with fifty monks in the monastery, suddenly you know you'd find that you were you know every gig you were, your name was on. So. He had certain methods. <laughs> so that the you know the point is is not trying to find peace through through nullifying the the sense world, but through that not giving it more substantiality, more reality than it really possesses. That's the problem. And then, and so sometimes you know in, when I use that example of the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree. Um, that you know, people can still feel okay. Well, you're, you know, there's still a kind of negation of the sense world. You know, there's still a kind of looking down on that. And it's very, we live in a very life affirmative culture. Would you not say? We might even participate in a very life affirming <laughs> mindset. So that we get very afraid when we talk about when you hear people talking about um, dispassion towards the sense world and that kind of thing. But you know, it's the, the the balance that's being talked about here. The 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 quality is, and this is something that we can experience for ourselves. Is like when that preoccupation, when that when we, when we stop um, giving the sense world more value than it really has, more solidity than it really has. When we stop creating each other, 
when we, we allow ourselves to relax into that quality of knowing, not fabricating the world, not, not fabricating each other, not fabricating our, our own story, when there's this that gentle relaxation, and then, in fact, what happens is that we're far more attuned to life, and in a way that's absolutely impossible to achieve whilst we're busy carrying around me and you and it and my life and my past and my future and the, you know, the rest of the world with all its problems that actually the, the result of it is not a, a, a kind of numbness or a, 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 a distancing, but a, an astonishing attunement. One of the ways that, um, that uh, I like to talk about this is, uh, again, using the imagery of the, the Buddha under the Bodhi tree. And like, the, the co- Buddhist cosmology and, and the stories of the suttas, these, there's always a a historical, a mythical, and a psychological element. So that when you talk about the Buddha under the Bodhi tree, then you say, well, was it actually that tree? You know, are we sure that he really sat you know, beside the river Niranjara in Bodhgaya? Because I have this doubt that maybe he wasn't actually there. So uh, the story goes that perhaps the Buddha did sit under a tree. Or this, in this Nepalese prince sat under a tree and something happened. Or stopped happening. <laughs> Somewhere in India, a couple of thousand years or so ago. So there's a certain historical basis, and there's, a, there's the mythology of the story. But then the most crucial element is how this maps onto our own psychology. How does this symbolize what we experience? And so what you have, first of all, is like so the, the night of enlightenment, and the Buddha's sitting there under the Bodhi tree. And and the, as the, the pattern of the story is that even though he's, he's had the insight into to reality, he's totally penetrated the, the cycles of dependent origination. His heart is utterly free, but Mara's army won't retreat. He's sent in the, the, the horrors, he's sent in his beautiful daughters, he's sent in the, the even he's got the kind of, the, the parent factor, you know. His old dad, King Sudodin, a little tear trickling down his cheek. And, well, son, you know, you could have done so well. <laughs> you know, you, you're, you, you would have been a great king, son, you know. And there's only that, you know, half-brother Nanda. He's a bit of a wimp and, you know, he's no good on the battlefield, you know. And you're so kind of big and strong. You're such a natural leader, son. You know, you could have done so well. And... Well, I guess if you're going to do this monk thing, you know, well, you know, the kingdom's just going to go down to rack and ruin. And, well, that's all right, don't, don't, that's fine. Uh, you just do whatever you want to do. That's absolutely fine, but, you know, just be aware that you're ruining my life. And that's fine. That's fine. That's absolutely okay. And so the, to each of these forces, the, the, the forces of allure, allurement and of fear and Responsibility. These are the three armies. Yeah. The the Buddha says he doesn't he doesn't just close his eyes and and just kind of go into into jhana. He's got his eyes open. And as the the armies of Mara come at him, he doesn't argue with Mara. Uh, he doesn't uh, create aversion to Mara. He just says, "I know you, Mara." I know you, Mara. I know what this is. And is undiluted. Doesn't react against it. And, and Mara, and the, as, as I was saying, you know, Mara's armies can't get into that space under the Bodhi tree. All their weapons turn to 
turn to flowers and and a fragrant incense, beams of of, of light to uh, you know, adorn the the vajra seat. But what's what's really interesting in this is that the Buddha sitting there, his heart is totally liberated, but Mara won't retreat. And he and he, he says, "What right do you have to claim?" the seat at the immovable spot. See, I'm, the, I'm the king of this world. I'm the one who should be sitting there at the, the center, at the axis of the world on the immovable spot. I'm in charge here. You know, I'm the one who deserves to be there, aren't I? And he kind of turns around to his horde, 700,000 strong army, and they all say, yes, indeed. <laughs> See, look, everyone agrees. You know, I belong there, not you. I'm supposed to be the great, the great one. And so then, Mara's not leaving the Buddha alone. So then what, what happens is then that uh, just as Mara has called his witnesses to back him up, then uh, the Buddha then calls on the, the mother goddess, Mea Torani, the earth goddess, to be his witness. And that's when you have the gesture of him touching the ground, this earth-touching mudra which you see. The Buddha reaches down to the ground and touches the earth, and then calls forth the earth mother. And she comes and says, this is my true son, who has every right to claim the seat at the immovable spot. He has done everything necessary to claim perfect and complete enlightenment. You do not belong there, Mara. <laughs> so then, of course, you know, having been Duly chastened, Mara was terribly sorry about that mother, you know. <laughs> Didn't really mean it, you know. And, but what happens is she produces this flood from her hair and the armies of Mara are all washed away and uh, they come back full of apologies and gifts and flowers and ask for forgiveness and so forth. But the, metaphorically, what that says to me is that, that even though we might have this kind of great space, of, you know, internal space of... of enlightened space or free space where, you know, internally everything is okay and that there's this utter freedom internally until that is interfaced with the world, the phenomenal world. And that's why, I th you know, the, the kind of meditating with the eyes open is, is a, in a way such a, a useful bridge because if, if all we're doing is cultivating this kind of vast internal space that is then dis somehow disconnected from the, the phenomenal world, if that enlightenment is simply subjective, if it's only internal, and then it's not really complete. Mara's army, even though you see, you, you see that this Mara's army is totally empty, it still won't retreat, right? <laughs> the, even though the hassle is there, the tax returns and the permits are still there, you, know, the, you, can, see, you can see that they're empty, but they're still kind of coming at you. But that you know, reaching out to touch the earth, it's like the Buddha recognizes, yes, there is that which is a transcendent and, um, and unconditioned. But there is also having the humility to, to not just try and, and simply hold to the unconditioned and the transcendent, but also recognizing, yeah, well, there is the conditioned, there is the, there is the phenomenal, there is the, the worldly, there is the, there is the sense world, there is the earth that makes up my body and my breath and the food that I eat. And it's like that gesture of reaching out from the the transcendent to, to, uh, to the world is like a gesture of saying, I am not afraid that um, fully engaging with the sense world is, can 
uh, interrupt the innate freedom of the heart. The innate freedom of the heart is uninterruptible by any, uh, uncorruptible, unconfusable by any sense experience. That's just one way of, of regarding it. But it's, a, it's really interesting that, that he w did not become a Samasambuddha, a fully enlightened teaching Buddha, without the help of the Mother Goddess and then the Father God. You remember the, the invitation to teach? This is the Creator God who came and asked the Buddha to teach. The kind of boss of the universe. So without the, those two figures, he would not have, have left the immovable spot and he wouldn't have started teaching. So mythologically there's some kind of interesting little quirks there. And in a, in a, a brief way of talking about that with a, another phrase that, the, that is often quoted is um, uh, 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 is uh, pabasarang akandu kehi kile sehi, which means the heart's nature is intrinsically radiant. Jitta is the heart or the mind. Pabasara is radiant. Akandu kehi kilesehi kilesas are defilements, like greed, hatred, delusion, and so forth. Akandu kehi means they're visitors, they're wanderers. Adventitious, that great word. <laughs> it's been used several times. So the heart's true nature is, is pure and radiant. Defilements are only visitors. So that, that it's pointing out the fact that, that uh, you know, in very simple terms, that yeah, the heart's nature is intrinsically pure perfect, and that what defiles it is, is only a visitor, are only passing through, they're only kind of uh, wanderers drifting by, and that the heart's nature is not corruptible in essence by that. So maybe I can uh, open things up for some questions people have. Yeah, Lee. <laughs> it just says, in, um, in no short time, I mean, it's, you know, it's just as basically he went away and did that, and in no short time he realized enlightenment. So that the, the, it's like that gesture is not really elaborated upon. It's not spelled out, it just says, um, and turning away from that, he inclines his mind towards the amatadatu, the deathless element. So it, it's, and I think that the simplicity of it is a clue. That it's actually extraordinarily simple, like now. You know that we can we can let the world end right now. And again, you know, we're we're a um, we're a life affirming. We have, we're a life-affirming culture, so that the idea of the world ending is like a, a horror story, you know, right? But in Buddhist terminology, it's, it's the great success.
Yeah, yeah. I mean, just like in the Rohitasa, the the discourse to Rohitasa, you know, it's just um, it's quite obvious that that the uh, the idea of the ending of the world or the the stopping of consciousness, or in the you know that the sutta about uh, um, you know the where earth, water, fire, and wind can find no footing. You know, it's not it's not talking about uh, a state that is uh, a kind of profound absorption. It's you know it's talking about the um, uh, the attitude with which one holds the sense world. Yeah, I mean, it's just like anything. It can have uh, one word is used for various different contexts and various shades of meaning. So it's just like you know that it can mean a very simple stopping. You know, like the you know the engine stops, or the you know the the um, uh, the it's just like a completion of something or a stopping of something. So it can be an exalted meaning or a very mundane meaning or somewhere in between.